Welcome to season three of the Get Your Money Right podcast, the podcast where not only do we want you to get your money, we want you to get your money right. This show is designed specifically for ambitious moms, dads, husbands, and wives to help you get money out of the way so you can start living life on your own terms. And if you're finally ready to transform the way you do money, come sign up for one of our free resources at yourmoneyright.com. Again, that's yourmoneyright.com. What's the good news, people? Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Get Your Money Right podcast, the podcast where we talk about money like it's everybody's business because I truly believe if we're not good with money, it's because we don't talk about money. And this show is designed to change just that. I am your host, the Money Misfit, Jamar Dupas, and this is episode number 48. And today, we got our second guest ever. We got a couple of brothers from an amazing podcast called the University College Be The Change Podcast, uh, which one that I found pretty recently, actually fairly new, but they've already off to a great start with some hot topics and great conversations. So I know, uh, stay tuned to that. You're going to be blown away by these gentlemen, how smart they are and how accomplished they are and all that good stuff. And if this is your first time tuning in, let me first say welcome, welcome, welcome. I don't know how you found us, but I do appreciate you being here. This is a different type of personal finance podcast. We talk about money as it relates to real life, how to use it to get the things you want to get to live the life you want to live, to travel the places you want to travel, to raise the family you want to raise and to have the marriage that you've always dreamed of having. That's what we do here. And I normally have a little bit longer of an intro, but today I'm so excited about getting into this uh, this interview. I'm not going to talk a whole lot. So if you want to find out more about what we do and how we do it, head over to our website at yourmoneyright.com. Again, that's yourmoneyright.com. And before we get into this interview, quick announcement, the boot camp is back, right? So a lot of you have been waiting on that. I have quite a few of you that's been on the waiting list but the boot camp is back open. So head over to yourmoneyright.com forward slash boot camp. Get yourself registered for that. If you don't know what that is, basically what we do is we sit down. It's a workshop. A lot of people have always asked us questions. How do you manage your money the way you do on one income with a wife that stays at home? You got three kids, one on the way. You own your house. You got a few cars. You guys travel. You go do fun things. How do you do that on one income? And, and this boot camp is basically showing you our system of how we handle money in our household, period, dot the end. And we'll answer any questions that you uh, may have around that stuff. So go, go get yourself registered for that. The slots are limited. We only uh, have about 10 new families uh, every time we do this to get on. Uh, so we make sure that it's an intimate setting that we can get every all your issues addressed. So head over to yourmoneyright.com forward slash boot camp and get in on that. The early bird pricing is available. And that's all I'm going to say about that for now. But today our topic is real good. We talk about historically black colleges and universities. We talk about the impact of Obama and the presidency. And having a black family in the White House for the first time and how it impacted us. And we also talk a little bit about Trump too. But this kind of goes into, not kind of, it goes into the same theme we've been running all month of February. It's Black History Month. And how it relates to money 
and opportunity as it affects the black community. And this uh, conversation is actually quite diverse. We go into so many different topics, but it's a good one. It's one of those that you just listen to and the time flies by. I know having the conversation with these fellas, the time flew by, uh, but ton of nuggets, ton of things that you'll learn, a ton of perspective, very interesting. If you like those conversations that stimulate your mind, this is one of those. So with that being said, I'm going to introduce to you Dr. Curtis Moore and Dr. Michael Coleman, their fathers, their husbands, leaders in the community, and just flat out great examples of what it means to be men. I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Let's get it. We got special guests today, as we've already talked about. We got two parts of the trio from the brothers that run an amazing podcast, University College. I have Mr. Curtis and Michael here with us. First, let's start off with Mr. Curtis Moore. Introduce yourself. Let the mistress know who you are and what you're all about. All right. Uh, thanks for having us, first of all. And second of all, my name is uh, Curtis Moore. Like you said, I am a cardiology fellow currently at UT Southwestern. Uh, that's my day job. My evening job, my, my job that I like to say is my real job, is I am one of the co-hosts of the University College Podcast, which is uh, my real joy in life. Um, but yeah, I'm a cardiology fellow by daytime. And we met Jamar in Prairie View. And that's really it. Mr. Mike. Yeah. Michael Coleman. I currently live in Lansing, Michigan. I'm an ophthalmologist. Uh, as everyone said, we all met at PV back when uh, Jamal had braids. <laughs> <laughs> looking, looking fly. Um, but yeah, so I'm an ophthalmologist. I do uh, cataract surgery transplants. Um, I think uh, Curtis and I and Vernon, you know, we've been looking at the things that have been happening uh, in the news and in life and you know, that kind of motivated some passions that kind of probably been simmering below the surface. And so we decided to do the podcast University College. But, you know, daytime, I'm just a father playing with his kids. And like Kurt said, in the evening, we're trying to be the, the agents of change that we hope to be. That's right. That's right. So both of you pointed out that all of us, we met at PV. So holla, holla at all our, all our Panthers out there, um, <laughs> which – encouraged me to invite y'all. So here, everybody knows this month we're doing a Black History Month um, type theme, right? Um, we're always talking to people of color anyway, because if you listen to me, most of my audience are people of color anyway. But <laughs> this month we saw it fitting to talk about uh, how it relates to money, how being a person of color, being a Black person, and how it relates to money fits with this month. And being that though you fellas you have this amazing new podcast uh, that is catching traction. I'm seeing people share it all over Facebook. I'm loving it. I'm listening to it. I caught myself listening to uh, uh, this last one about Trump. But we're going to talk about that, y'all. I promise you, because these guys are entertaining. And it's funny because though we have very similar backgrounds, we all went to PV. If you listen to these brothers on the show, they have different perspectives, right? So it's not going to be, you know all bashing or all left-leaning, all right-leaning. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a plethora of, of things, and it's a real good. It's entertaining. So y'all got to make sure y'all check it out. And, of course, y'all know me. I'm going to put the link in the show notes. But so we 
we talked, we all met at PV, right? So that inspired me to talk about how historically black colleges, and we're going to talk a little bit about politics today too, but how historically black, black colleges have impacted us uh, as a whole when we talk about opportunities, we talk about economic strength, things like that. Um, but before we get into that, I want to dig in a little bit about you all, because this is a show we talk about money, right? We get into everybody's business because I believe that if we're not good with money, it's because we don't talk about money. So to both of you, and we'll start the same order. We'll start with you again, Mr. Curtis. All right. When you hear the term money, what comes to mind? Man, what comes to mind? Now, Mike knows me well. And anybody who really knows me knows that when I think about money, I think about spending. Money burns a hole in my pocket. I'm not, <laughs> not going to lie. I'm probably, I, probably, I probably have the worst financial habits. I'm sure you'd be very upset with me if you can look into my uh, bank account and see how I spend my money. Um, you know, I, I remember this thing when I was younger. You know, and my dad, one time he got a flat. And I was like, you know, Dad, what are we going to do? And my pops was like, look, son, I don't change tires. I write checks. Right? That's what, that's what my dad told me when I was like 10 years old. So that's kind of how I approach money. That's, that's kind of my philosophy on money in a nutshell. So right. I, I really I need tough. to work on my, my, my money tough. philosophy. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> sounds good. Sounds good to me. Wow. Mr. Coleman. Um, so when I think of money, I think of options. Okay. I think of choices. So, you know, the way I view money is just a means to an end. Um, so, you know, if you know me, I have a, a family that is, has not always had access to financial means. Lots of portions of my family have grown up in projects and government subsidized housing. And I've seen how one bump in the road can really derail, you know, people's financial security and how you can be stressed. So that's, you know, you know, I'm not real flashy or anything, but one thing about having, you know, a little bit of cushion of money, when people want to do a trip, you can do the trip. Get up and go. I get flat, you fix the tire. Somebody bump into your car, you piss, but you get it fixed. There you go. Yeah. Y'all listen to that, right? Y'all listen to that. Hey, remember, we have to go back to that episode. It's expensive being broke, right? (laughs) It's expensive. So you get you a little cushion, get you some margins. My question to you, though, I want, I wonder if you think about like a difference in how we grew up. Cause I, I kind of grew up in a suburban environment. Mm-hmm. Um, although my dad's side of the family, um, is not as well off as my mom's side. My mom's side is very well off. I mean, all my mm-hmm. aunts and uncles are educated. Like I said, I grew up in the suburbs of Indianapolis. So I think that maybe that's why I view money a little differently. You know, why I view money as something that you spend and not necessarily something that you save. Man, I know my dad saved. He just didn't really, you know, talk to me about that portion of it as much. And whereas Mike had lots of examples that kind of forced him into wanting to make sure that he was always safe, always had something to take care of those rainy days. Yeah. So, you know, I see that, you know, talking to couples, talking to individuals, I see that it can go either way. Hmm. Right. So I've seen people who've grown up in situations where you think, look, you grew up poor. You should be wanting to save. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But they don't. Right. Because uh, one of the issues that, that, uh, that we find, and even like, I think about like me growing up, didn't really have any money, but this is mentality that once you get a little bit of money, you need to spend it because you may not get another chance to buy this thing. 
Right. Yeah. So go ahead. No, the other thing I was thinking is, so for some, someone like, you know, so the good, cool thing about at least my experience. So, you know, my parents had me fresh out of high school, parents didn't go to college. Um, so I've kind of gone the spectrum. My, my parents have very stable jobs now. They're solid in the middle of the class. They're on the house. And I'm a doctor. So I've kind of seen the spectrum. I've been to projects. I've been to mansions. And one thing about, you know, I'd say about not having money all the time is that you are looking for experiences. And so you mentioned not having money, but you may not get an opportunity to get this experience again, right? You spend your time wanting those Jordans, those rims. So when you get that money, that thing you've been thinking about, uh, you're going to get. And uh, this is kind of a tangent, but this is true for physicians too. They always talk about doctors and having delayed gratification. Doctors historically are very poor money managers because from the time we get out of college to the time we're in residence, I mean, the time we're actually getting paid can be anywhere from eight to 12 years. And you've been being cheap for those eight to 12 years. By the time you make money, you just want to spend it. You want the big house, you want the big car. And it just, you know, you spend it as fast as you get it. Yeah. I remember my first purchase when I became an attending, I made a little bit of money as a when I was chief resident. I bought some Gucci shoes and a Gucci belt. I dropped like, <laughs> I dropped like $1,200 on some shoes and a belt. I still got it, by the way. It still looked nice, but you know, it, was, yeah, yeah, yeah. it was a dumb purchase. <laughs> Gucci. We, <laughs> well, you know, there's a, large, there's a large part of our population that don't believe, and it, it's, 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 it's fitting that both of y'all are here and both of you are doctors, that uh, doctors and high-income earners don't have money problems. They feel like because you got a high income, which those who listen to this show, they know better, right? We've talked about it. But there's a large part of this, 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 this country that believes if you got a quote unquote high income, you don't have any money problems. Yeah. But nah. talking to yeah. y'all, y'all right here, you're saying that's not necessarily the case. Nah, you can spend it, my brother. You can spend yeah. it. Believe me. <laughs> I'm here to testify that you can spend every dime you get easy and, and not even be flashy. Right. right. Just, just normal stuff. Kids, school. Yeah. A new car for the wife so she can get to work safely, you know, get a new house, want to get, you know, the upgraded security system. Before you know it, we spent it. Yeah. The other thing, though, I mean, you mentioned the house, where you buy the house, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So people like us, we want to go to the better school districts. And the better school districts have significantly higher property values. And I mean, it's significant. Right. So, you know, you're talking about a premium of 30 to 50 percent on a value house. Ain't no bigger. Just in a different neighborhood. Yeah. And the only reason that neighborhood exists is because of the school district. So, you know, big money just mean big bills, really. Yeah. Right? And, the funny, and funny thing about it is that big money is, a, is, a, is the wrong word, right? Like I'm, we make regular money, right? My, I'm not even a doctor. I mean, a full-fledged physician as far as practicing out in the world. I'm still a fellow. I'm still a trainee. But my wife, is, she's an attending. She's an OBGYN. She delivers babies. And she's out in the world. And she makes decent money. But I think the difference between somebody who makes, you know, 75 thousand dollars a year and 300 is really just the taxes you know mm-hmm. your lifestyle is not that much different per, to me personally right. you have to have millions and millions of dollars to really feel that difference in your lifestyle get on private jets and yachts and be out here doing it like diddy yeah so i um i give this example i talk about it in the boot camp i've i've had the, the privilege to sit down with a couple couples uh one was making about thirty thousand a year and the other was making about 30,000 a month. Yeah. Right. And they were both in the same boat. <laughs> <laughs> the difference was the one that was making $30,000 a month actually had a boat. 
Exactly. Right. Yeah, that's, 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 <laughs> a little bit nice for both to live in. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, but they were like, we're going to have to sell this boat because, yeah. you know, we don't know where our money's going. So somebody who would look at somebody who's like, man, you make 360000 a year. How dare you not have any money? But the difference is the person that's making 30000 uh, a year, they're spending all their money at Walmart. Mm-hmm. And the person that's doing 360 may be doing that Neiman Marcus or something like that, right? Uh, it's not that they're like lavish. It's just that it's, it's where these things take you. And those same habits that you have at 30000 a year, it's going to be the same habits you got at 30000 a month. Yes. And until you change those things, because uh, we've all made more money today than we did, you know, Absolutely. 10 years ago. In our prairie right. days, for sure, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but most people ain't much better off, you know? That's true. So, so true. along that same vein, let's talk about the past versus present. Uh, and Mr. Cole, we'll start with you this time. What is something that you believe about money today that you used to believe that is no longer true, right? There's so many, but we'll just go with credit is bad. Okay. So... I grew up, and we briefly talked about this before we started recording, I grew up in a situation to where, uh, you know, basically my parents made some bad um, credit decisions and it took them years to dig out that hole. So I grew up in a situation where credit cards were bad, you know, layaway was bad, like anything that you didn't just pay with cash outright was bad. But unfortunately, the way our economy works Credit is just, a, you know, I said this earlier, a means to an end, but credit is a, a vehicle that you can use to create wealth. So uh, I would say that's probably the biggest thing that I've learned since I've gotten older and managing my own money. All right. That's good. That's real good because there's a, we we used to believe the same thing. We kind of, a lot of people know Dave Ramsey and me and my wife got our start kind of listening to Dave Ramsey as well. And we would think, you know, hey, you know, you don't need any credit, but it's like by the time we got ready to buy our house, it was like, say, dog, you need some credit. <laughs> my wife was like, uh, and I was like, well, I guess we got to pay for cash. My wife's like, no, no, I need this house. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? She's like, I need my own kitchen. I need the sink. I need all that. So let's, let's make that happen. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. That's a good one. All right, Mr. Moore. Yes. So I think that the main thing I've learned is that money doesn't really solve problems. You know, mm-hmm. the same habits, like you said earlier, are going to follow you no matter how much money you make. I mean, me and my wife lived together when we were both residents and residents make about $45,000. It's well known. The government knows, you know, government pays your salary. Everybody can look at what your salary is. It's not really divulging much, but when we were in Houston together, we're living together. We made about $90,000 together and we lived pretty well. I mean, I really don't see anything different from then and now. And we make a significant more money now because my wife's an attending. So I think that, you know, this thought process that money will, will solve problems, make life easier. It's just not true because you will find a way to spend it if you don't change your habits. You know, I've been just now starting to change my habits. Listen to a couple episodes of your podcast, starting to, you know, think more about it. And I'm seeing a change in my habits now that I can see how, you know, with the right stewardship, money can make a difference in your life, but it's not the amount you make. It's how you treat the money you make. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, which I think is a good segue to, to go on and talk about uh, kind of what we decided to come here and talk about. And that's HBCUs and the opportunities that it has uh, presented to us. Um, 
all of us, even including, I don't know if my audience knows this about me. I was biology major, pre-med, shout out to PCI, all my folks at PV, <laughs> PCI. Uh, I was PCI 2000, summer 2000, you know. Yeah, you're before um, us. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I remember y'all was coming in. And it, uh, from my personal perspective, it was not something that was even on the, the map for me, on even the radar for me. Growing up in Houston, I've heard bad things about PV. It was a party school and yada, yada, yada. When I got there, I couldn't really find no parties that I really wanted to go to. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> um, but there was this old old guy that, that came to my school and got me out of class one day uh, by the name of Dr. Brown. And Dr. Brown, you know, I guess he saw my SAT scores or whatever, and he came and got me out of class. And he actually made a couple of visits to my school. And he talked to me about the opportunity, me being a young black man, wanting to be a doctor, and where that the best opportunity for me was, and that was going to be under, under their care, you know, under a school that cared about you. And the way he painted that picture for me is he showed me the results of how many uh, black students that they got accepted to medical school at Prairie View versus I was going to Baylor at the time. I was already committed. I had paid a deposit on every in my dorm and everything. Right. And I was going to go to Baylor. And he was like, at Prairie View, we sent like 47, I think it was like 47 or something like that in the last year. And he said, Baylor sent eight in the last eight years or some crazy <laughs> number like that. <laughs> no competition. Right. So uh, that's my quick story, but where do you stand and we'll start with Mr. Coleman again. Where do you stand on the opportunities or do you think it's necessary or do you think it's an opportunity for those of us, for, for black people, when we talk about HBCUs, do you think they're necessary? Do you think that they give us more opportunity than we would otherwise have? What's your story? What's your uh, thoughts on that? So quick, quick comment, Dr. Brown, he's the same reason me and Kurt ended up at yeah. Prairie View, same scenario. <laughs> <laughs> I but the funny thing, I was actually going to Baylor too, and yeah. then I was going to go to Xavier. I had my little Xavier shirt, you know, produces black doctors, and then Dr. Brown pulled me into PV. Yeah. Uh, but <clears throat> as it relates to HBCUs, I'm gonna take this in two parts. So one, one is the traditional mission, right? Where HBCUs basically their sole purpose was to get African Americans educated, basically so we can return to the community and contribute to our own communities. Well, that mission can't be the same because the world is different, right? African-Americans have options. We have Hispanics. We have uh, people from Muslim countries, right? The world is just a more diverse place. And only catering to African-Americans, I don't think, is going to be useful long term because it will ultimately affect their ability to be financially solvent as far as the money that the federal government sends to them. So uh, as an institution, I mean, they will always be historically black colleges, but the mission and purpose will change a little bit. I think they will still serve uh, students of maybe not as much means. Um, they will have a broader or higher acceptance rate, right? They won't be these exclusive, by and large, these exclusive institutions. Um, but I, I do think they, they have a purpose. The second reason I think they have a purpose is people are uh, more critically analyzing the value of a college. And when I mean value, how much it costs you to pay to get your degree. And if you look at HBCUs, there is great value. The cost of tuition is better. The teacher to student ratio is higher. They produce equally productive people at some of these larger, more expensive institutions. And I think solely because of 
the job market and the debt and the incomes that people are making, I think they have a great opportunity to grow their portion of the pie. Uh, so I'm very optimistic long term as far as HBCUs and that network of schools being uh, contributors to the growing educated population of the U.S. <laughs> so, you know, I think, first of all, you're talking to a very slanted audience. You know, yeah. me, and, me and Mike contribute financially to Prairie View, at least we did this year. We yeah. plan to do, you know, in the future very heavily. And, you know, I'll tell my story before I get started. And basically just say, Dr. Brown, you know, called me from, from Prairie View and he would call my house, you know, every Friday night, <laughs> and, you know, just bug my mom to talk to me about, you know, being a, a doctor and using Prairie View as my vehicle to get there. I guess he did the same thing with me. He saw my SAT scores, saw I checked the doctor box, saw I was African-American was like, hey, this young man needs to come down here if he's really serious about being a doctor. So, you know, that's how I got to Prairie View. But before that, you know, I'm from Indianapolis. You know, Indianapolis is not the most diverse city. I think we have like the same percentage of blacks as the general population, not nearly as diverse as Houston. So I think it's about 11% black people in Indianapolis. So almost every school I went to from grade school, I was the only black kid in any of the honors classes. Yeah. And, you know, when I went to go, when I go to cafeteria, you're back in the, you know, regular population. So I have all these black kids who don't know you. And I'm, I'm, I'm skinny. I got a massive head. So I just get made fun of by all the black people. I mean, I don't, I can, I can't remember a black person who didn't make fun of me when I was growing up. So when it came time to, you know, pick out a college, you know, I'd already signed up at Wash U. I was ready to go to Wash U. I was really excited about it. Washington University in St. Louis. Yeah. And I had, I wanted no part of a black school. My mom had taken me to, you know, multiple black school tours, you know, taking me to Xavier and taking me to uh, Morehouse, all these places. I wanted no part of it. It's like, I do not want to go to a black school. Um, but, you know, as Dr. Brown wore down my mom, talking to her on the phone, you know, actually I made a mistake. I should have had Dr. Brown talk to me. I would have said no. <laughs> I would have been fine. But I let Dr. Brown talk to my mom. And yeah. over time, he wore my mother down like only a grandfather could. Yeah. And she eventually f- figured I'd be the safest at Prairie View. So she made me go. Yeah. But, you know, I think that these colleges are most important because of what they can provide from an environment standpoint. Yeah, you know, school's important, you know, as far as you know, books and things of that nature. But I think if you go anywhere and you apply yourself, you'll get the books you need. But I had a real confidence problem around other black people before I went to Prairie View. Mm-hmm. I just didn't feel comfortable around black people. They always made fun of me. Right. I mean, why would you feel comfortable in that environment? Right. These people are always torturing you. Right. So when I got to Prairie View and I, I met Michael Coleman, I met, you know, Andre Lofters, guys like you who had massive braid hang time. You know, I was like, you know what? <laughs> you know, guys who I can relate to, who, who were smart, just, just as smart as I was, who had the same goals as I did, but still liked, you know, Jordan, still liked to go to parties. It was just, it was, I mean, it blew my mind. There's so many lessons I learned at Prairie View outside the classroom. And to me, those are the most important lessons I learned because it gave me the confidence to be me. It gave me the confidence to go and pursue my doctoral degree. I don't think I make it to being a doctor in any environment, but a black school. So I think, you know, I think that they are paramount in not only helping you learn about whatever you want to be, but helping you learn about yourself and who you are. That's, that's strong because I, I tell you, I, um, 
in my earlier years, I was a troublemaker. So I, I jumped around school. I went to five different elementary schools, right? Like <laughs> <laughs> that's an early troublemaker. Five different yeah, elementary yeah, schools. Early, early. Um, you know, you know, we never owned a house. We were always in apartments, right? Like I grew up in like some of the worst little apartment complexes and I've always been little, right? So I always had to fight, you know what I mean? So um, I ended up going to a, uh, a majorly white high school out in Fort Bend here. And uh, for those of you who don't know, that's just a county outside of Houston. And um, so I, I was thinking the same thing, right? I didn't, you know, I didn't really have the, the, the experience anymore. Most of the schools that I went to early on were, uh, you know, majority black or Hispanic schools, but then like seeing, um, you know, <laughs> be honest with you, like having experience with white people for the first time in like high school, but it was the most, it was the most impressionable times of my life was high school. And so, uh, going to a, uh, a black school was, was a challenge for me, you know, cause you know, I think we, I've talked about this before and, and a couple of times over the last few episodes we talked about this idea of uh, uh white supremacy not necessarily being a, a white only thing absolutely um, absolutely look at your grandma's and, wall she got everybody got white jesus on their wall yeah <laughs> and white santa and white right. santa right <laughs> so uh that's a that's a real point uh issue there that, that and I'm glad you pointed that out because it was for me there was this pressure. Maybe other people feel this too. And I, and I'm, I'm hoping to protect my children from this is being a black kid. And there was an issue or a fear of being too smart. Absolutely. And I think the, when, when I got around and, and seeing brothers like yourselves and they're just, you know, doing it up, you know, not even just the biology majors, the engineering majors and things Absolutely. like that, Absolutely. you know, it made, it made things possible in my eyes. And so that's one of the things from my personal perspective, I think is really important. And one of the reasons why I decided to talk about this podcast, one of the reasons why I decided to talk about uh, black people in general for this particular month is because I think we don't see enough examples of what can be right. And so I'm really glad that y'all pointed that out. And, And since you guys talk about politics a lot, I want to ask you, uh, cause we just got through of eight years of Barack Obama and I talk about examples. If you don't mind, I know it's not exactly what we got on here to talk about. If you don't mind, talk to us about that particular impact. If it had any impact on you as a black man, being a professional, hadn't gone to have gone to an HBCU, both of you have families of your own and then seeing, what do you think? having a black family in the white house will do has done for you and will do for your children, our future generations, Mr. Coleman. So from an imagery imagery standpoint, it was amazing because not only did, you know, you have the Obamas in the white house, but the complexion of the news media changed, Mm -hmm. right? What was considered to be acceptable personalities on the news? uh, What was acceptable things to be covered? Uh, even stuff as simple as our, remember that, that terrorist fist jab thingy that the Obama yeah. did that <laughs> yeah, everybody yeah, yeah. Uh, covered on the news, like, you know, it was so un-American. I think uh, he made being black and normal things that we did normal. And, you know, there's one thing about, you know, being about majority white places as the only black person is they think stuff about you is novel and different and they think that because you're black skin that 
you, you know, things come to you in a different way. And I think having the Obamas as kind of the epitome of lots of black families. I mean, you know, the, the media likes to slant things in a way that says, hey, the only thing that black people are doing is we're, you know, got black dudes not taking care of their kids, going to jail. And we got the Obamas, right? You can say yeah. what you want, but that man commands the attention, right? He's educated. He's well-spoken. His wife is the epitome of elegance. His kids are educated. They behave themselves in a manner that everyone can be proud of. Yeah. Right? I think from that standpoint, you know, from my kids, right? My, I have an eight-year-old daughter and a four-year-old son. That's all they've known is a black person uh, in the White House. And I think from, as you mentioned, anything is possible perspective, I think it's kind of the best. Um, so that's kind of my take on it. Yeah. And, I, and I'll piggyback on that from an image perspective. It was great, right? It was one of those things where you were always proud to have somebody who was just so dignified to represent you. Because at the end of the day, when you go out to the world and you're talking, you know, whether it's the hospital or at your job, most times you're one of the only brothers in the room. Mm-hmm. And when you're one of the only brothers in the room, unfortunately, you have to represent all the brothers. Yeah. <laughs> if you're the only Muslim in the room, you got to represent all the Muslims. This is the way it goes. That's yeah. how America's built, yeah. right? If you have one white boy in the room, he has to represent all the white boys. And that's yeah. just the way it goes. Yeah. So to have him there is that shining light to kind of help decrease the wattage or the bulb on you, was, I think was extremely important, you know? But I also think that it was, it was a curse in some ways. Okay. Because, you know, you couldn't really complain about anything, right? Because people would say, oh, well, you know, Barack <laughs> Obama is the president, right? right. Could you say... Could you say it was a problem, what was going on as far as affirmative action, the lack of, you know, black faces in the media, the lack of black faces in the government? They're like, oh, wait a minute. The president's black. Yeah. He voted they, for a uh, black man he, to be president. He ended racism, too, didn't he? Exactly, right? Like, <laughs> all these ridiculous <laughs> things that came along with it, you know? They're like, you know, funding for HBCUs. I mean, all these things were tied to the fact that, look, we don't have to worry about that right now. Affirmative mm-hmm. action is a dead. Is dead. Because you have a black president, a black man is ascended to the highest office in the land, so none of these other things are a problem now. And this yeah. wasn't true. So this is a there's a known phenomenon where, when a majority or uh, an oppressed people gain access, that following them they lose access to other things. So like if you look in Europe, when they had that first female prime minister, misogyny was at an all time high within their campaign or post, just kind of like, oh, we gave you this privilege. We're going to pull back all these other things. And people, you know, some people like Van Jones called it a white lash. I think that's maybe not appropriate, but but needless to say, there was this this fervor that kind of burned because Obama and the Obamas were were in the, the White House and, you know, Trump's election was able to ride that wave. Yeah, exactly. I think that Trump... Trump's rhetoric only works in a post-Obama age. It doesn't work if, if, if there's a white male in the office because white men don't feel threatened as right. much as they did seeing Obama every day. So I think that Mike's right. I mean, maybe white lash is a little bit strong, but there definitely was this, this thought process that the Clintons didn't recognize amongst, you know, poor and rural whites that said, hey, you know what? We're being pushed out here. And if you give it 20, 30 more years, we're going to have, if you make these 11 million illegal uh, Latinos uh, legal, 
if you give them citizenship, that's we're going to be even more marginalized. And it kind of became this thing where it's like, you know what? We're losing power. We're losing our country. So let's make America great again and bring mm-hmm. it to back to where it was before. So with that being said, we, <laughs> we go from HBCUs we make all we ourselves all the way. We actually made it to politics. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about what this now means. Now that we have uh, Trump, right? Um, he's talked a little bit about things that he can or will do for black people and HBCUs and things like that. Um, we're unsure about what's going to happen economically, right? I have my own ideas and, and my own particular, you know, cause I study this stuff. Right. But from your perspective, what does this now mean for people of color? Because there's a lot of people out there really afraid right now, right? And really kind of, I don't know what to expect now that Trump is in, is in the office, right? So what does a Trump presidency mean, not only for people of color, not only for black people, but for the country as a whole, for the world? I mean, in my personal opinion, so far, you know, I think you could say we're not sure what's going to go, what's going to happen mm-hmm. when he was the, you know, interim president, when he was, you know, kind of running up to being in office. But we've had 30, 40 days of this man so far. I think it's just, just beyond 30. And it's just pure chaos. <laughs> like, you don't know from one day to the next what scam is going to occur or what ridiculous talking point they're going to come up with. Now, it's been pretty consistent. You know, he's... All the things he said he was going to do, he is attempted to do them, whether they were legal or not. <laughs> so I think we can, you know, just yeah. go back to his campaign promises and see what he's going to do. He had that ridiculous rally yesterday in Florida, and he, he doubled down on, you know, cracking down on legal immigration, on cracking down on uh, the crooked media or the fake news. So those things to me, you know, as far as a foreign policy standpoint, and just, you know, the everyday workings of the government, I see chaos. But there's a couple of things that interest me from a black man standpoint. Um, one, his whole talk about Chicago. Now, I agree. If you look at the murder rate in Chicago, it's like number 10 on the list. But let's just use Chicago as a symbol right. for the inner cities in America and the problem we have with, you know, people being murdered in those cities. And that mainly affects people who look like us, the three of us. So to me, if that man wants to crack down on them somehow without being unjust, like I want to be clear about that. Mm-hmm. I don't believe in going in those cities and cracking down on people and putting people who don't deserve to go to jail in jail. I'm not saying that at all. But if he can find a way to solve this violence problem that we have in Chicago, in Detroit, in L.A., in New Orleans, you know, I'm all for that. I'm all for that. And he also talked about as we talked about earlier, giving more money to HBCUs and increasing the funding of those institutions. Now, his, his reason for doing that, I'm not sure, but, you know, I think that can only be a good thing for uh, lots of young men and women who are aspiring to be who they want to be because at the end of the day, black uh, youth do better at HBCUs than they do at majority institutions. That's, that's just a proven fact. Good points. Good points there. What about you, Mr. Coleman? What do you think a Trump presidency means for this country as a whole? So I think, like Kurt said, I think we don't really know yet. But I'm actually going to take a couple counterpoints. So if your listeners don't know, I'm actually pretty conservative. But 
I'm not conservative like I'm a Republican. I'm conservative in my ideology, but that doesn't necessarily make me either Democrat or Republican. I kind of flip flop depending on the issue. But let's do the education one. So Betsy DeVos was uh, basically nominated Secretary of Education. And one of the issues I have with her is that as a country, we say we want to have a very well-educated population. And the people who are at the highest risk of being victims of poor education are poor people. And those will tend to be black and brown people. And her primary mission is to basically gut funding for the kind of communal system that we all share. And so I understand Trump trying to put more money into the HBCUs, but that's after high school education, right? If you're not mm-hmm. competent before you get there, then you can't take advantage of some of those monetary increases. Good and point. so from um, uh, looking at the vulnerable population, I think the people who will have the worst outcomes are going to be the people who can't afford to move their kids to the district, right? The poor area is going to get even poorer because now people can use vouchers to put their, put to a private school or to a better district. And so the system as a whole will suffer. So I am concerned about educating our kids. The second thing, and this is not necessarily related, but is voting. So uh, Donald Trump came out and he's been talking about how the voting or basically his election, he would have won an electoral landslide as well as the popular vote totals if it wasn't for the, the 3 million people who voted illegally. And unfortunately for Trump, the Republican agenda has been to minimize uh, the Democratic base and their ability to vote. And so under whatever rules you want to call it or whatever heading you want to put it, I mean, he's basically going to be able to use data to allow people to be better disenfranchised or be more effective in their means of disenfranchising voters in poor urban areas. And so my two primary concerns have to do with educating the kids and, you know, making voting much more difficult. If we're going to say one of the perks of being an American citizen is voting, then I have concerns uh, about the Justice Department standing up for civil rights infringements. Yeah, I think, no, let's piggyback on Mike's point. You know, people always talk about access. That's, you know, Betsy DeVos's big thing and Trump's big thing. We're going to give people access to better education by giving them a voucher. So you pay less taxes into the school system. So, you know, you can kind of gut the Dallas ISD system. It doesn't matter because we're going to give you access to other schools out in the suburbs. But the problem is if you don't have a car or if your mom has to work really early in the morning and she can't get you to school without losing her job, you, access doesn't mean anything. I have access to four and five million dollar houses. I can go look at them all I want. I can't <laughs> afford it. Right. Yeah. So to me, this access thing is, is, is a, it's kind of a rouge that's pulled over our eyes to make us think we have something we really don't because there's no way that you can, you know, work through this thing that's going to be helpful to the poor if they have access, but they can't actually get, get to it. To me, it's kind of like, you know, with the financial uh, situation, you know, the stock market is soaring. It's going through the roof, but if you don't have enough money to save, you know, six months to keep yourself safe, if you have a medical bill, when are you going to put money in the stock market? How are you going to take advantage of that soaring market if you can't even, you know, put food on the table? So this access thing to me is it's this cloak of deceit that Donald Trump's trying to pull over all of us to kind of make us feel comfortable, make us feel better about our situation when we really don't have a choice in the first place because we don't really have, you know, the means to use that access. So you so have pseudo choice. Yeah, I was going to say there's this old cliche: a bird in the hand is better than two in the bush. 
right? That all is saying is what you have is better than what you could potentially have, right? Mm-hmm. So the, what we do have is 40 years of success with a publicly funded education system. What we don't have is proof that a decentralized system of education will work for the vast majority of the U.S. population. And I feel like we're playing with fire. Now, some people, let's, let me let me take the opposite side of that. Now, some people will say that we got 40 years of failed education. It's true. They talk about where we land on the, you know, the literacy scale on mathematics, STEM, you know, things like that uh, in comparison to the rest of the world, right? Uh, we being America is supposed to be the greatest country in the world and where we are in education, so they argue that, look, what we've been doing doesn't work. And so what they're trying to do is create competition uh, to make or to force school to do to do better. Yes. What's your argument against that? Oh, I'm glad you brought that up, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, so first off, I think that's false choices. Right. If you look at the past 20 or 30 years, the way we have elected to fund our education system is not. Uh, commensurate with the population growth and the exactly. student demands. Exactly. But let's get back to what I said, the 40 years. If you look at after World War II, up until probably, say, the 1980s, unprecedented growth in the, our global influence, our economic production, new businesses, tech design, we landed on the moon, right? Just a general awareness of people uh, as far as, like, basically using what you know to uh, to climb up the ladder, that period of time is what America is known for, right? You can't be like all of this stuff happened and you don't take into account all the social safety net services that we, we afforded people, land grant institutions that were funded, the GI Bill that put people in college, you know, NASA. So, you know, I think people kind of pick and choose the glory days, quote unquote, but there was a time period where people actually agreed that it was important to actually teach, uh, actually teach your kids and not teach your kids based on score, right? But teaching with a purpose, teaching to learn. And I think as things have moved away, you know, with basically the funding stresses of the educational system, poor teacher treatment and all these other things, then now we're left with a system that's fragmented and you have the haves and the have not in the educational system, right? They're great public schools, but they're terrible public schools. And, you know, financial means is probably the biggest risk factor to get to getting to the good ones versus the bad ones. Yeah. And I still think that, like to Mike's point, that if you look at the funding, even here in Dallas, where I'm located, where I'm a fellow, DISD is way underfunded when compared to the schools on the out outskirts because per student they get way more money so i think that we haven't really given this system an honest try for the last 15 20 25 years and i think that you're right in the black community especially where we've had a high concentration of black and brown people we've had lots of problems getting funding since you know beginning of time you know since we were able to go to school so i think that you know there definitely needs to be some tweaks made system we have now but to blow it up for a system that we all can see more holes in solutions doesn't seem like a good, a reasonable response. Yeah. So the other thing that I, I think, uh, and, and just to add to this conversation, uh, that people don't take into account 
because I'm a big fan of of choice, right? I'm a big fan of competition. Uh, I'm very much um, probably lean more towards like a libertarian when I come to my political views, right? Um, but at the same time, I understand that there are different challenges for different people. Uh, for example, my son uh, goes to a dual language school, um, and uh, which is in our neighborhood, right? And our neighborhood is nothing to sneeze at. The houses are, you know, valued at above average across the, across the board, right? And these, these are small houses, but they are going for 300, 400, you know, these are, but there are people here who won't even send their kids to the local school because it's not a good school. When, really when they say it's not a good school, they're talking about demographics. Of course. Yeah. Right. Um, <clears throat> and then the, and one of the, one of the things that I always hear a lot of people, cause there's a lot of Jewish people around me too. Um, one of the things I hear a lot of people talk about is the number of low income kids that are there. And that is an indication because low income kids have different challenges. Mm-hmm. Right. So, uh, they're not getting breakfast in the morning, right? You talk about access, right? I can get to the school, but we know this kid doesn't eat breakfast. He performs a certain type of way, right? Even if his mama can get him there, or if you can get on the bus and get there. And then there's like the parents are working more and they have less, uh, less flexibility with their, with their jobs, right? With their service level jobs and things like that. So if there is no after school program at that, at that school, that child can't go there because their mom needs them to stay there till 430 or, or get the tutoring or things like that. Um, so those are the other things that I think we don't really take into the account when we think about, okay, yeah, this school has better scores or this school is better or whatnot, but there's always these other aspects that we don't take into account. Uh, these unforeseen consequences um, yeah. that I think uh, Trump is going to find is a, real big issue, especially when we talk about economics, because that's the thing that I look at a lot. He talks about building this silly, silly wall and all the other crazy stuff and sending, sending people back and stopping people from coming here and things like that, which is ridiculous from an economical perspective. Yeah. Uh, but Mr. Coleman, I love your point that you made about how we see all these advancements, but at the same time, for some reason, we're so focused on the scores, but we, we lose the purpose aspect of education. Uh, which is one of the things I talk about all the time on this show. It's like, what are you making money for? Right. Number one question you need to ask is what do I want my money to do for me? Same thing we need to be asking about our education system and our politicians. Gucci shoes. That's what I make the money for. (laughs) Gucci shoes, Gucci belt. As long as you clear about it, you know what I'm about? As long as you clear about it. That's, that's the deal. Right. So, uh, so we talked about HBCUs. I, I want to kind of uh, tie back into that because we um, very interesting conversation. And and those of you who listen to this, and y'all are like, man, this is good, good stuff. This, this is the type of conversation that goes on all the time on university college, right? If you are digging this, you definitely need to go to their podcast and listen to it. I'm going to, of course, you know me, I'm going to put it in the show notes. And when y'all do, don't just do that. Give them a rating and review, right? And share the stuff. Just like y'all did for me when we got this thing popping, share this stuff, right? Um, but I lost my train of thought because I was trying to say something else. Well, we appreciate it. <laughs> we appreciate it. You're talking about HBCUs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we talked about HBCUs and it's, it's Ms. Coleman, you touched on this earlier about you think that it has a future, but do you think it's necessary? There's some people who feel like, well, 
that's kind of segregation. That's kind of racist to have these type of institutions. Where, where do you, where do you, how do you feel about that, that, that particular perspective? Well, so it's always to me, uh, I'm going to maybe take a different angle, but people can use data to make whatever story they want. Right. So if you go to a black school and it's like 92% black, you'd be like that being racist. But if you go to Harvard and Harvard's 92% white, you say they're selective. So, you know, the cool thing about HBCUs is that they're actually not selective. It is purely a function of the type of people applying to the school. So they make all this hoopla about how the schools are being racist, and they're not. They have an open-door policy. If you go to Prairie View, there are white kids at Prairie View. As a matter mm-hmm. of fact, the funny thing about being at Prairie View is most of the white kids I knew were the athletes. They were the soccer yeah. players, the baseball players, yeah. and stuff like that. Um, but as it pertains to the actual mission, the reason why me and Curtis give money to Prairie View, for one, you know, they did lots of us, and they were very integral in us attaining the levels of education that we did. Um, but they, they cater to a different type of student, right? A student that may have some additional hurdles, a family that is not necessarily economically sufficient. Um, you know, so we're still in touch with the biology department. The chair of the department was telling us how they had to basically use scholarship money because one of the students was living in that car on campus, right? I think they, the services that these HBCUs provide to people as a stepping stone to make them productive people who contribute to society. And I mean, income, tax, educating kids, being examples to that community. I think the value we get in return is something you can't even compare, right? So Prairie View's motto is Prairie View produces productive people. And as you said before, you know lots of successful black people and lots of them come from HBCUs. That's not an accident. And so because I, as an individual, I'm not, I'm not naive to think that I'm something exceptional. I think that, I think Prairie View, you know, we talked about the environment. We talked about the support. I think that same thing I felt is something that they replicate for thousands of students every year. And because of this, they contribute African-Americans to be teachers, to be nurses. And African-Americans predominantly go back to communities where they're from. And so they provide services to those communities where other people aren't. And so I don't think the homog- the homogeneity of the, the school has anything to do with racism. I think it's all to do with the applicants. I do think the end result is justification to continue as they are. Yeah. I mean, I'm from a majority environment. Like I said, I grew up in Indiana and I went to med school at Wake Forest in North Carolina. I went to residency in Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. I'm now at UT Southwestern in Dallas. So I've been, I've been in majority environments my entire life and nobody ever looks at those environments and says, Oh man, what's going on here? You know, why are these not representative of the total population? So to me, I spent four years in an environment that was nurturing to me. Now I can't speak for every brother walking down the street, but I needed that. Like I said earlier, you know, I won't restate that, but I needed that environment, that medium to kind of become me, to be confident in me. So I think that they're very useful. And if you look at Prairie View right now, Prairie View is a much different place than it was when we were at Prairie View. There's a lot more brown people at Prairie View than there was when we were there. And that's good. You know, it produces productive people. It doesn't say it produces productive black people. It produces productive people. And that's fine. But I think at the end of the day, if you go to an environment and you don't have to worry about being brown or black, that's not one of your stressors that morning. When you get a C at Prairie View, you know, it's because you did a bad job. (laughs) 
you're not worried about the teacher didn't like you because of the color of your skin. You know, you know why you got to see because you didn't do the work you were supposed to do. You know, and that, it just takes away one of the, you know, stressors that come with the majority environment. And that's okay for a few years. Nobody's saying that you can live there forever. You got to come back to the real world and interact with everybody. And that's great. We want you to do that. But for that three or four years, you get a chance to kind of focus on you and do something more than just education. Because education is not just about books. It's also about life. And at Prairie View, I learned a lot of great life lessons. That's outstanding. I can't, um, I think we're going to close with that, fellas. I mean, that, I don't know a better way to end it, but what I do want to do is if there's anything we didn't get to cover, any message you want to deliver to the audience today, say what you want to say. Let us know how we can get in touch with y'all, how we can follow up with y'all. But let's close this out. Mr. Coleman, we'll start with you. Any last words? Uh, so first off, thank you for inviting us on. It was engaging conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, you know, I'm a big HBU supporter. I'm, an, I'm a big supporter of education. I'm a big supporter of work ethic. And I think you will go a long way if you educate yourself in whatever you're passionate about and you work hard to achieve your goals. Um, the only other thing, this is kind of a shameless plug, and I apologize. This has nothing to do with the podcast. But me and Kurt, uh, we talk about giving money to Prairie View. So we have a nonprofit um, that we use as a means to donate. And if you're interested, if you're a Prairie View alum and you're interested, uh, by all means, you know, we can give the information to Jamar and he can pick you guys up. Go ahead. Go ahead and share it with that. Share it with us now. Because one of the things we talk about all the time here is about giving. Right. And the power of giving and the freedom that it gives you. Uh, because it's it's we, we talk a lot about how you get the same dollar to do multiple things. And giving is one of those powerful things where not only is are you affecting change for somebody else, but you're also doing a whole lot for yourself. And you cre- you are claiming dominion and power over the dollar when you're able to give it away. Uh, and I've watched it work in my life and watched it work in so many other people's lives. So please, uh, because remember, we talked about this before, every nonprofit needs profits, right? So <laughs> talk to <laughs> us about uh, how we can take some of our profits and, and, and help out the organization. Yeah. So the name of the organization is the TTE legacy, uh, foundation. Um, at this current time, we're basically just donating money for scholarships for, there's an academic scholarship for students, uh, in the science department. So at this point it's biology, chemistry, physics, engineering. Uh, and we're trying to give, you know, basically several annual scholarships, uh, for students tuition, um, for their meal plans. And the funny thing, this year, the money that we donated actually went to PCI, the program that Kurt <laughs> and uh, Jamal went to. Uh, it was to help close the gap. They had a little uh, funding shortage this year for their PCI students, and so it actually went to that. Uh, but like I said before, we're trying to contribute back uh, to the university that has given us so much. So you can give me an email at mjcj2005 at yahoo.com, and then I'll take care of you from there. Outstanding. Of course, y'all know we're going to put that in the show notes as well. You'll find that right there on the app that you're listening to, or you head over to yourmoneyright.com forward slash EP47. Mr. Coleman. I mean, not Mr. Coleman. I already said Mr. Coleman. Mr. Moore. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Your final word, sir. Yes, sir. So, you know, Thanks again for having us on. We really appreciate it because, you know, we started our podcast 
because we didn't really hear any voices out there like us. Me and Mike listened to a plethora of podcasts. You know, Vernon is a high media consumer. And we just didn't hear anybody talking like us. And we wanted to hear that. So it's great to hear you talking about money. You know, if you're interested in politics and, you know, we also talk about, you know, marriage and children, all these things in the black community. If you want to hear that, you know, look us up at University College, anywhere you can find the podcast on any medium that podcasts are distributed. As far as our social media information. On Instagram at U College. Yeah. Instagram at U College. Website is University College Podcast.wordpress.com. At Twitter at UNIV College BTC. And, you know, our slogans kind of be the change. And we want to make sure that we are that change um, community. And that's really the point of our podcast. And we hope you guys come take a listen to us. Outstanding. Outstanding. Well, sorry, Vernon, you couldn't be here, man. We miss you. Yeah, he's a little but, under the weather, so we'll give him a pass today. All right. Get better, brother. Uh, <laughs> the boss man. Keep it on page. <laughs> Mr. Moore, Mr. Coleman, uh, thank you so much for being here with us. Hey, man. Thanks, man. It was a thank blast. You. Well, there you have it, Misfits. What you think? Wasn't that good? Uh, it's nice when you get a, a good conversation with some really smart, smart brothers, doctors, no less at that. Uh, so, again, shout out to, all, to the fellas over at University College Podcast. Y'all go check them out. Of course, the links to everything that they got going on, the Instagram, the Twitter, the Facebook, their actual podcast will be in the links in the show notes. Uh, again, you can get that at yourmoneyright.com forward slash EP48. I know I said 47 earlier, but, you know, I lose track of those things sometimes. Uh, but it's going to be EP48. Or you can just find the notes in your favorite podcast player that you're listening to right now if you're on your phone. So, uh, let, also before I close out, don't forget the boot camp is open. Go get yourself registered right now, right now. Do not wait on that. Again, the slots are limited. Uh, because I like these things to be nice and intimate so we can make sure we answer all your questions and talk about the situations that you want to talk about. Uh, so again, that'll be this Saturday, February 25th at 1 o'clock Central Time. So get yourself locked in on that. Early bird pricing is available right now. Uh, again, don't wait for that. Again, that's yourmoneyright.com forward slash bootcamp. Again, all that stuff will be in the show notes. I said again about 20 times in the last 30 seconds. It's kind of annoying. But anyway, let me get on out of here. Hey, I really do appreciate you listening. I love you and God bless. Yes. 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 I said we're talking about money.